Welcome to TWT FM, a weekly podcast from the world transformed, bringing year-round radical political education and utopian thinking to bear on the issues that define our world. In our second series, we're exploring the concept of leisure, and in particular, aspects of life we've been missing due to the COVID crisis. What does leisure time reveal about our relationship to work and time under capitalism, and how our lives might be different with access to more of it? Join us as we delve into our favourite leisure activities, including dancing, football, holidays and more, with the wide-angle lens you'd expect from TWT. As ever, please subscribe and share the podcast with friends if you haven't already. For now though, turn up your headphones, sit back and listen up. This is The World Transformed. Hello and welcome back to series two of TWTFM. We've been busy behind the scenes reflecting on our first run of episodes and excitedly planning a new set of podcasts for your sonic enjoyment. We've been thinking a lot about the themes that are pertinent to the times that we're in. We've been through a long, hard winter lockdown with short days and little sunlight, but now we have a tentative roadmap to reopening our lives. Nevertheless, all of us are yearning for spaces of collectivity and commonality, yet the measures required to halt the spread of COVID-19 almost universally prevent this. With the sites of our favourite leisure activities, from stadiums to dance floors currently closed to us, we've been thinking about how as socialists do we address the politics of leisure, and more specifically, how has the pandemic challenged this? Can we define leisure and how does it relate to ideas like freedom and necessity? How does the concept of leisure reveal our blurred relationship to work and time under capitalism? Commodification, luxury and consumption? Or the loss of public space? What kind of radical demands emerge when we insist on the right to enjoy leisure? We touched on some of these ideas in our first series, reflecting on unemployment and the possibility of rethinking our relationship towards leisure time, creativity and work. In this series, we want to interrogate this further. As ever, you'll be presented with a smorgasbord of critical and engaging content, mini documentaries on historical struggles, calls to action from grassroots activists, accessible theoretical musings and artist interviews woven together in our TWT magazine style. We are grateful to be working with Autonomy for this series. Autonomy is an independent think tank that focuses on the future of work and economic planning. Their research and policy development aims to envisage alternatives to the various ongoing crises we see today. To find out more about Autonomy, visit their website autonomy.work where you can find all of their research and you can sign up to their mailing list. This season, as well as longer episodes on dancing, football and holidays, we are also experimenting with a selection of shorter shows covering one specific topic in detail. As ever, please like and subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. Also, if you could share with a friend, that would really help us grow our audience. Before we get to the fun stuff and focus on specific forms of leisure, we thought it might make sense to have an introductory episode looking at the challenges we and our predecessors have faced and still do when it comes to accessing leisure. So to begin the episode, we spoke to writers Sarah Jaffe and Rianne E. Jones to learn more about the struggle of getting out of work and finding free time. Tumble out of 
bed and I stumble to the kitchen Pour myself a cup of ambition And yawn and stretch and try to come to life Jump in the shower and the blood starts pumping Out on the streets the traffic starts jumping With folks like me on the job from nine to five Hey Sarah, thanks for joining us. So how would you define leisure? So I would define leisure, I've been thinking a lot lately about the Marx quote about the realm of freedom actually begins only where labor, which is determined by necessity and mundane considerations ceases. And that kind of captures it for me, right? Like we we can only actually access free time when our material needs are actually taken care of. And so it's it's beyond it sort of being a space outside of work. And I think a lot about like the sort of mental space and capacity that we need lately, obviously in a pandemic, to actually access something that feels really like leisure, which is, you know, it's not just it being not work, but it's being free enough of material demands to actually be able to do things just because they are pleasurable. How difficult is it to actually get out of work these days? It's much harder to sort of separate work from the rest of our lives than it used to be when many more people sort of went to a job that was in a place that was not at work or that was not at home and that, you know, that had a defined work day. And it was sort of clearer under, you know, what we call like the industrial work ethic, it was sort of clearer that you had an antagonistic relationship with work. And I think the disappearance of that, and this rise of this sort of labor of love thing where we're supposed to get not just money, but fulfillment from our jobs, has made it in turn harder to sort of draw a line between what is work and what isn't work. One of the the things about the logic of the labor of love is that it's really gendered, right? That a lot of these, these supposedly lovable jobs in things like the care sector are based in the work that women used to be expected to do unpaid in the home. You know, I I think about, right, like now where we have home care work as a paid work sector, because in part women have gone into the paid workplace, now we have to pay people to do the work that would have been done unpaid by women in in the family. And the workers who are doing that paid care tend to be women. They tend to be women of color. A lot of them are are immigrant women, right, who end up at sort of the bottom of the paid work scale. And that means that, like, your home is a workplace not just for you, but for somebody who is coming into it, you know, as their site of work away from their home. You know, they're a reminder in a way that, like, there, there was not actually always a distinction between the home and the workplace. And that, you know, that was that was always only for some people. Gig work, for example, which is also sort of happens outside of and on the outskirts of labor law, even in the UK, um, is dominated by workers of color. And so and that is certainly a kind of work where the boundaries between work and off work are really blurred because you've always got this app sort of burning a hole in your pocket that like if you just turn the app back on and do a few more hours of work well, you'll, you'll make more money, you'll be blah, 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 successful, whatever. And so again, it's that, that inability to sort of entirely turn off the realm of necessity that you think is, is really the problem of, uh, that blurs work and into everything else these days. How does the logic of work consume our leisure time? And how has COVID in particular affected this? 
I think the logics of work end up in our lives all over the place in all sorts of surprising ways, right? And and as I was just saying, the way that the talk about self-care, which is, of course, it's a quote from Audre Lorde, who was a radical anti-capitalist Black woman organizer, um, and it's a line about self-care, caring for myself being an act of political warfare. Um, and And, you know, now it's been sort of turned into like, Instagram memes about bubble baths and and buying products in order to take care of ourselves and like, you know, you have to work harder in order to be able to consume all the things that that you want to consume in your free time in order to like, make yourself a better person in order to go back to the workplace the next day. Um, That's that's one thing that I think is is pernicious. I mean, social media, in general, has this I mean, first of all, like when we're doing social media, when you're clicking like on Facebook or retweeting a tweet, we are creating content. These are little sort of micro units of work as we create value for Facebook and Twitter and all of the rest of these evil companies. Although actually there's only a few of them now because they've all consolidated so much. Um, and also, you know, we're, we're sort of encouraged, especially if you work in a creative or public facing field for your social media account to be sort of your personal brand, which is a term that I want to set on fire, if one could set words on fire. And that you have to sort of always be projecting this professional um, image, even when we're not at work. Um, that, you know, my Twitter feed has to be a representation of who I am as, as Sarah Jaffe, the journalist, because otherwise I might not get another job if I'm too whatever I might be on social media. And then, of course, I I deeply loathe the rise of the dating app because it just feels like work. It feels like a job interview. You know, you're you're swiping on things and you're filling out profiles and you're you're hoping to present your best self in order for it to be like chosen. And then you go on a really awkward date that maybe if you're lucky, you have some chemistry with this person. But it just all feels like another kind of work and that like it's been sort of fit it into the structures of work so that we can fit it around our work schedules. COVID has just made all of this so much worse, right? That like now I, I find it just, I, it's exhausting that like the only people I'm talking to, I'm talking to about work, that I'm, I'm in my bedroom all day sitting in front of my computer and I'm working. And then when I'm not working, I'm talking to people about work because like there's nothing else happening so, like, I feel like my life isn't going anywhere. There's nothing going on. There's sort of no progress forward in anything other than work. Yeah, and, and we're sort of also not allowed, and this is not, like, I don't think we would deter- describe it as leisure a lot of the time, but we're not, we're not really allowed to grieve, which I think is an important space away from work that we need because, like, you know, hundreds of thousands of people have died between the UK and the US, where over 500,000 people are, are dead of this thing. And that's touching everybody's life in some way. And I, I think it's really important to sort of claim space away from work to grapple with the sad and the awful things of life, too. That it's, it's not just about having free time to have fun, although I, we desperately need that. But it's also having free time to like, be human in all of the ways that we are human, which includes grieving. Monday in the afternoon is bearing down on me. I'm watching the clock and the 
clock is watching me Don't have to be cool but you know I am Don't have to be here but you know that I'm a hard worker but I ain't working on a Monday I'm a hard worker but I ain't working on a Monday Can you tell us about the tradition of St Monday and how it fits in with other historical struggles for more leisure time? St Monday is the is the practice by 18th and 19th century workers of taking Monday off work um, to give themselves a two-day weekend, um, which might not sound particularly radical in itself, but um, when you look at it in historical context, you can see uh, why it's important. So the first thing to emphasise is that working life is always a function of a particular economic system. Uh, It's not something that's set in stone, as we're seeing with some of the responses um, to lockdown. Um, with people shifting to remote working rather than commuting. Um, And we also see it with things like the rise of automation and how that might affect working life um, and calls for a four-day week, this kind of thing. Um, Working patterns can change far more rapidly than we think. Um, So an example of this um, is that from the late 18th century onwards, um, with the Industrial Revolution in Britain, we see new industrial work patterns being imposed Um, quite suddenly and quite harshly on a pre-industrial workforce. So working time previously had been structured by agricultural work on farms or artisan labour in workshops. And this kind of work was based around seasonal cycles um, and the rhythms of the day, like when when the sun rose and set, rather than anything more arbitrary, like it wasn't the sort of nine to five shift that we might we might think of Um, and people were accustomed to different patterns of leisure as part of this as well like they'd have leisure activities like fairs or um, sports matches and festivals that could go on for days in some cases Um, with industrialization working life for ordinary people became all about clocking in at factories or coal mines or ironworks um, which was all based around the needs of an employer rather than um, your own less alienated work, as previously. Um, There's an essay by E.P. Thompson, uh, who is one of the first historians to look in detail at this aspect of um, industrialisation. It's called Time, Work, Discipline and Industrial Capitalism. Um, So Thompson argued that the earlier pattern, um, sort of very intense bursts of work interspersed with longer and more frequent periods of leisure and rest, uh, may have been more beneficial and more logical than the the sort of the patterns that we've grown used to under capitalism, which has been you know it's it's been argued against and and people have debated it. Um, but at any rate, industrialization entrenched a six day week um, with only Sundays free um, and occasional holidays like Christmas Day. Um, at this point, there was also no restriction on the length of a working day. Uh, there's no restrictions on employing children, for example, in mines and factories. Um, it's all very intense and uh, all geared towards maximising production with no regard for the welfare, safety or agency of uh, of workers. So you can see this tension between older and newer ways of working and this tension gives rise to struggle and resistance from industrial workers as they try to shape the new working patterns to benefit themselves rather than their bosses. Um, sometimes this struggle would take the form of open conflict with employers like strikes and lockouts, but it could also involve more subtle disruption and subversion of the of the working day. And St. Monday is an example of this. Um, so St. Monday was a holdover, basically, from this pre-industrial working life 
that I've described. Um, 18th century workers could generally set their own schedules um, and adopt their own work rhythms. Um, so they were in the habit of working intensely from Tuesday to Saturday. And then they'd spend Sunday at leisure doing whatever they wanted. And then they'd allow themselves Mondays off um, to recover from Sundays. So for much of the 19th century, although the working week had intensified and working patterns had shifted, um, industrial workers continued to observe St. Monday. So they just wouldn't turn up. They'd just be like collectively absent on a Monday. And they justify that by saying, well, we're, we're keeping St. Monday. So this justification that was based in popular cultural memory and very recent working life, um, which meant that some employers were prepared to tolerate it, um, though not all of them were. St. Monday formed part of like a whole, a whole history of struggles to reform working conditions and working life. Um, and trade unions were um, central to this. Um, the, the Chartist movement in the 1830s was calling for a shorter working day and improved working conditions in general. Um, and slightly before that, in, uh, in 1810, Robert Owen um, was calling for, first of all, a 10-hour day. Um, and then an eight-hour day, and he actually coined the slogan um, eight hours labour, eight hours recreation, and eight hours rest. So even there, you can see that recreation, you know, i.e. leisure, um, was considered one of the fundamental needs that a worker had, along with labour and, uh, and rest. Nobody can see what the matter is I'm trying to recharge my batteries I'm a hard work, but I ain't working on a Monday Many thanks to Sarah Jaffe and Rianne E. Jones for their insights. Sarah's new book, Why Work Won't Love You Back, How Our Devotion to Our Jobs Keeps Us Exploited, Exhausted and Alone, is available now. Rianne's new book, Paint Your Town Red, How Preston Took Back Control in Your Town Can Too, is available for pre-order. All of you workers and hear what I say They're trying to plunder the eight-hour day Run by our forebears in a bloody campaign So rise up and be in the struggle again So stand up united, let no one betray And grip like a bulldog to the eight-hour day As we heard from Rianne, it is thanks to workers' struggles that we have a two-day weekend to enjoy. But what if we wanted more than that? The movement for a four-day week is growing internationally, so we spoke to two activists from campaigns in the UK and Spain to find out more about the policy and how their campaigning has been going. So my name is Charlie Clark and I work for The World Transformed and joining me to discuss the four-day week campaign we have I'm Joe Ryle, I'm the campaign officer for the four-day week campaign. And I am Maria Alvarez and I'm the founder of the four-day week campaign in Spain. Thanks for joining us guys. The first question is just could you tell us a little bit about the, what the four-day week campaign is? Obviously the clue is in the name but it'd be great to hear a bit more where it comes from and what its long-term aims are. Um, so we've been campaigning for a four-day, 32-hour working week with no reduction in pay uh, for the last four or five years. But we really saw the policy idea take off around the time of the 2019 general election, the Labour Party, 
uh, adopted it as policy. And for, unfortunately, they lost that election. But what we've seen is this re-emergence of the idea after the pandemic hit. And there's, there's many reasons for that. One of them is that shorter working hours have historically been used as the best approach for spreading existing work more equally across the economy. Um, if there's, you know, if there's more work available, then you can share it more equally with people that are unemployed. Um, secondly, people have had a lot of time on their hands. And I think what that's led to is people reimagining their future, looking at their life and the balance in their life and seeing that actually they work way too much. And this is a particular problem in the UK where we work some of the longest hours compared to any EU country while also being the least productive economy and having the least number of bank holidays. So, you know, this isn't actually producing good output. It's not, people aren't performing better. We're just working too much and we're burnt out, we're stressed. Uh, and, you know, more than two thirds are, are stressed or overworked in their job. So we've been campaigning for a four day week for four or five years and, and we're pleased that it has picked up and we've seen not only the Scottish and Welsh governments considering it, but also in Spain and New Zealand. And we've had a victory in the last couple of weeks in Spain, which I'll allow Maria to talk about. Well, in our case, uh, I think the Spanish campaign is different from the other ones around the world because it's the only one that's um, like promoted by companies here. My business partner and I, we run a couple of social enterprises. Uh, we came across uh, some of the work that the Labour Party did to think about this idea and to include it in their manifesto. Uh, we came across the four-day week campaign in the UK and uh, a report that a Labour uh, Party member commissioned. And we realized it was one of the, of the ideas that should have been in the toolbox of every government coming out of this crisis, right? So it wasn't a moonshot. It was uh, uh, something that companies should, should really go for, not only for the well-being of their workers, but also because we need to change companies coming out of this crisis for many reasons that we can talk about. So we implemented it in a small chain of restaurants that we have. We've been running on a four-day week since May now. We had a lot of uh, publicity back then when we started, and it's been crazy. It's been uh, like a hurricane here, everybody. Uh, we took the news uh, over, and like we've been doing interviews pretty much daily ever since. And one of, uh, one of the parties that are currently in Congress picked up the idea and put it on the table in a negotiation that they had with the government and managed to get a trial uh, running. And all this time, I kept thinking about how the idea was mocked back in November when it was brought up there in the United Kingdom and the kind of response that you got. Uh, and and uh, it makes me think how fast the, like the overton window is moving at this time, no? how it can go left and right so quickly. Um, I was going to ask ask you both then, do you, have you found that where people previously might not have taken seriously the idea of a four-day week, COVID and the lockdown has meant that people are, are now listening to the idea and taking it much more seriously? The opportunity that we have now for implementing it is completely different because what's happened here in the UK and, and, and across the world is that what seemed impossible back in March, for example, most of the workforce moving remotely and working from home, happened overnight. And so people have seen that actually when it comes to the world of work, change can happen when we want it and it can happen very fast. And so that only leads to people questioning what, you know, what permanent changes we want coming out of this pandemic. And a four-day working week has got to be at the heart of building a better society as we, as we build back after this pandemic. It works as well, you know, where companies have trialled it. And these aren't just small businesses. You know, there's been 10 to 15 small businesses that we've worked with 
that have switched to a four-day week since the pandemic. It's working very well for all of them. But bigger trials like Microsoft in Japan and Unilever, um, you know, they're all trialing it. And, and, and every time they trial it, productivity goes up. Workers are much happier and healthier. Companies are getting the same output. And so it really is a win-win policy, the four-day week. I think one main feature of this idea is that it's really very simple and very easy to understand and to imagine. And it inspires everyone. Like you, you bring up working four days a week and people start thinking, what would they do with a long weekend or what things they have pending that they haven't been able to do because of, they don't have any time. Like it's so easy to bring it down to earth, but at, at the same time to inspire people. And we don't have many ideas as strong as this one when it comes to that. And, and of course, you know, working hours, if you look back historically at the, the trade unions winning the weekend in an eight hour day and all the arguments that were made at, at that time are being made again now around the four day working week. You know, they're quite easy arguments to rebut. And, you know, in, in the UK since the 1980s, surprise, surprise, working hours have barely reduced at all since then. There's no reason why a, a kind of eight hour, nine to five, five days a week is, needs to be the norm. You know, it's really outdated. I guess there's two ways of approaching the argument, right? There's either the argument we might make to the business world or to capital around um, the four day week leading to a more more productive workforce. And then there's the argument we might make to workers um, who want more free time and more time for leisure and, and to do as, as they will. I wonder just for both of you, how, how effective are those two arguments? And, and do you think it's necessary that we make the first argument about productivity? Because really, that's the one that's going to be listened to. When I speak about productivity, I, I'm not talking about productivity of workers. It is a mistake to think about productivity as an issue with the workforce. Productivity is a measure of companies and their organization and their way of developing. So when I talk about increasing productivity, I'm not talking about asking the workers to be more productive, like to train themselves in any way. I'm talking about going to uh, mom and pop stores and businesses and telling them that they cannot rely on uh, such long hours anymore, that they have to start thinking about ways to introduce technology and innovation in the companies just to have business models that can uh, work out with shorter hours. Because in Spain, we have this argument all of the time, like uh, people use the productivity argument against workers, but it, really workers can't change their own productivity. They can only change it to a, a very lesser degree. What we need is different business models. Yeah, I mean, we, d we tend to make the argument, the business case for it more often. I think most people deep down know that they're working too much and know that it's not right how much they're working. Yeah. And, and we see that in the polling, you know, four-day working week is popular whenever it's polled. People, you know, people want it to happen. Um, so we tend to focus our arguments on the business community and, you know, broadening out the support for it. And, and let's remember, you know, we do need these companies and businesses to, they're, they're the ones that are going to implement it. So we do need to persuade them and we do need to win over new supporters. But I think, I think there's an interesting discussion around whether it's an anti-capitalist policy in some ways it is, but I also see it as just sort of making sure the gains of capitalism are, are, are spread amongst everyone. The economy should be working to improve people's lives rather than see people simply working to improve the economy. You're not going to look back on your life when we're, when we're older and, and, and think, oh my God, I wish I worked more. Um, and of course, you know, it's not a silver bullet. It's not going to solve all the problems of the economy. We also need to see the living wage go up so people can afford to work a four-day week. 
But it, it's an exciting time to be involved in the campaign. I, I really think there's an inevitability about the need to work less on a four-day week. And it, it, it may take some time to get there, but I think we're on the path. And that it also gives the left a chance at dominating the economic agenda. And I think that's very, very important because if you want to end capitalism, you're going to start. You have to start offering alternatives, right? And at least in little bits, ideas that can inspire a different way of looking at the world. So I think it's important on that regard. Just an just just additional point, sort of separate from your question, but I know the, the topic of, of this series is about leisure. And I think it's interesting when you look back at um, the historical victory of, of winning the weekend, which the trade union movement were a massive part of. There used to be Sunday was a day off, but Saturday used to be everyone used to work. What they did in, in the UK anyway was they put the football on a Saturday at 3pm. That became a real leisure time fixture, sort of calendar day that people went and watched or they followed. And actually that was a big part of the victory of gaining the weekend for workers was, was the football being on a Saturday at 3pm. And, and I think we need something similar now for this day and age. And I, and I think it does need to be something leisure focused. And maybe it's on a Friday, you know, you know, maybe it's something like a community day, but I, we haven't worked out what that is yet. And I'd be interested to hear if listeners are listening in any ideas, but I think we need to create something like that again to, to enable this kind of like gain in leisure time. Thanks to Maria Alvarez and Joe Ryle from the Spanish and UK four-day week campaigns. If you want to find out how you can agitate for a four-day week in your workplace, we encourage you to speak with our friends at Autonomy by heading to autonomy.work. As we come marching, marching On numbered women dead Go crying through our singing Their ancient call for bread Small art and love and beauty Their trudging spirits new Yes, it is bread we fight for, but we fight for roses too. But we fight for roses too. But we fight for roses too. As we have heard, the journey to leisure is in part about winning the time in which to do it. But it's no good having the time if you have no place to go. We return to Rianne E. Jones to answer the question of what has happened to our public spaces in the last few decades, particularly in relation to sites of leisure. To understand what's happened to public space in the last few decades, I think we need to look back uh, quite a long time, almost to the to the start of the 20th century, if not beyond. Um, part of the fundamental purpose of uh, the welfare state, for example, in 1945, was a commitment to providing um, not simply adequate housing and health care for everyone, but also a commitment to providing public space, um, both for, for things like physical health, for exercise, but also for um, socialising. Um, so, for example, a lot of estates that were built after um, 1945 included space where residents could just hang out, just socialise, um, even things like uh, communal gardens and allotments that could be used for socialising. Um, in more modern housing, there's very little attention to this. Um, and in the private sector, like obviously it's often the opposite way as landlords squeeze people into um, HMOs and divide up older houses rather than trying to give people enough space to, to live and to sort of enjoy themselves. 
Um, and it's a similar thing if you look at the design of cities and towns in general. Um, in the Victorian era, like, there was huge provision for civic space, um, especially things like public parks and libraries, like civic buildings, that were provided by local and municipal authorities. Um, what we've seen over the past 40 years in particular is that financial imperatives, so increased privatisation um, and cuts to local authority budgets, is reshaping public space at quite a, a material level. Um, in something as, as basic as the fact that under austerity, local authorities don't have the funds to maintain things like libraries or recreation grounds or school playing fields. So we see these things, um, these public spaces being sold off for private development. Uh, and then looking at smaller towns in particular, there's the, the issue of the high street, like the, the decline of the high street over the past few decades. Um, although we might think of a high street as a commercial space, um, people who use them locally often see them as more than that. They see them as places to meet and socialise too, like in cafes or youth centres. Uh, but high streets have obviously been hit by the rise of online shopping, um, things like the loss of independent shops um, through high rents and business rates and the growth of out-of-town supermarkets. So you've got that, and in I think that affects small towns particularly, whereas in bigger cities you've got gentrification. Um, you see the, the pattern that gentrification follows by now. Um, often there are creative spaces developed um, and leisure amenities um, often developed, um, you know, by relatively poor working class artists or precarious artists and cultural workers um, and often developing in disused industrial spaces. Um, so these these artistic spaces form a sort of cultural ecosystem that attracts um, attracts punters, like develops the local economy, but then it also inevitably pulls in corporate investment, property developers, um, and generally that sees the original cultural workers and spaces forced out, um, not only through things like higher rents, but um, like through housing being being built around there and then complaints from the residents of this housing about noise and disruption. Um, you see it, I used to live in um, East London a lot about... Um, 20 years ago and you could see the pattern sort of begin there but now you see it in loads of cities like Manchester, Newcastle and Cardiff. Um, so on the one hand you've got gentrification which means you lose collective space for leisure, you get priced out. Um, while on the other hand things like austerity, post-industrialization and general neglect of small towns uh, means that you lose cultural and leisure amenities completely. Um, I just mentioned two other um, factors as well. One is just that um, so much cultural consumption and activity happens online now, so there's less idea of it as a, a physical collective activity. Um, leisure has become something that's quite atomised, um, particularly when like the cost of living is often prohibitively high, so you see people staying in um, rather than going out to pubs or gigs, um, turning to individual consumption and engagement. Um, the other thing I'd say is that from the 90s onwards, you had um, fairly explicit government restrictions on the use of public space. Um, and you saw that particularly within um, within the sort of the, the arena of music um, and leisure. So there were things like the Criminal Justice Act in 1994, which was an explicit restriction of collective gatherings um, and the, the free festival and free party scenes that had been happening in the 70s and 80s. So you've got that legislative reshaping of the concept of public space, as well as um, practical material shifts in 
how public space looks, uh, who can use it and access it. In this final section, we'll look back to a project that sought to build a public space where leisure could be freely and creatively enjoyed. We'll hear from Nadine Holdsworth, Professor of Theatre Studies at the University of Warwick, to tell us about the legendary working-class theatre director, Joan Littlewood, one of the visionaries of the Fun Palace. Although we'll look back, the Fun Palace remains a utopian vision of what leisure in the future could look like. The Isle of Dogs, a landscape now punctured with high-rises, was once etched with the vision of the Fun Palace. Joan Littlewood, a radical theatre director, met Gordon Pask, cybernetician, in the late 1950s. In the unlikely meeting of science and art, the pair produced a series of logic diagrams, sketching how actors and audiences could combine via feedback loops. Littlewood believed in the chemistry between audience and actor, that the plot must not be determined merely by the writer, but its trajectory altered by the audience. Levers, headpieces, buttons, all commodities of the control room, could be adopted by the theatre, giving rise to performative cybernetics, and new plots that were both spontaneous and controlled, experimental and potentially mischievous. So Joan Littlewood uh, was just a fantastic maverick, really. Her approach was very anti-authoritarian. She wanted to really explode what theatre and culture could be um, right from the beginning of her career in the 1930s, where she was really started with the workers' theatre movement, which was part of seeing theatre and culture as part of a revolution and about art as a weapon and trying to educate the working classes in terms of their position in society. Um, so they did lots of, initially, lots of uh, plays that were about the everyday struggles that the working class were facing at the time, so whether that was to do with the, the post-war housing crisis, uh, they did work around the, the kind of squatters' rights um, to things around kind of un, unemployment. So those first kind of starts of her career was very much about theatre as a weapon, using theatre as part of galvanising the working class to see their position in society and leading to, to change. And then that mm -hmm. kind of evolved through her career. Um, so towards the, the middle of her career, she became much more interested in, in representing the working class in, in theatrical practice in a way that hadn't really happened before. You know, you used to have representations of the working class. They were kind of chirpy cockneys or the, the maid figure or the stoical northerner. And she really wanted to present kind of working class communities in all their richness and their diversity and really wanted to kind of move away from a metropolitan elite kind of notion of what theatre was and to represent uh, regions, uh, to bring on working class writers and performers. So that, that was really part of her kind of agenda. And then she's most famously known for a piece called Oh What a Lovely War. What began as an experiment within structural confines of the theatre expanded with the addition of architect Cedric Price. Each playfully engaged with their distinct disciplines, they conceptualised the Fun Palace. It was to be a leisure centre of grand proportions, architecturally designed for immersive pleasure. One could walk into a labyrinth of creative and practical activity, 
Try starting a riot or beginning a painting, or just lie back and stare at the sky. A space of limitless potential, the Fon Palace intervened into a new form of urbanism, defined by the sociality of amusement. So the, the Fun Palace really grew out of a period in, in Joan's life when she was getting disillusioned with, with theatre. Theatre Workshop, her company, didn't ever get any decent funding from the Arts Council and continually had to move their productions from the Theatre Royal Stratford East into the West End um, as part of the kind of commercial sector in order to make money, in order to make the next show. And she just got increasingly disillusioned with this way of living and started to look for alternative uh, ways of thinking about culture. So the Fun Palace really grew out of that in the mid-1960s when she was having these very radical ideas about what leisure could be, what culture could be, how people could engage with what she called a university of the streets. And then she happily met the architects uh, Cedric Price and together they collaborated and came up with this amazing plan for the Fun Palace. And it was extraordinary on so many levels in terms of its architecture. This was going to be an open space that you could access from multiple different entrances. Uh, It was going to be completely free and would have this program of activities where people could do all sorts of things. They could go to a lecture, they could go and do a theatre workshop, they could go and learn um, car mechanics, there would be a space where they could go and wash their clothes uh, and then just go and hang out um, and kind of dream and think about uh, life in all its kind of rich complexity. Uh, So it was a really kind of radical kind of sense of what culture could do for people and and she had this idea you know it's incredible to think of now that we would have so much more leisure time that the new birth of kind of new technologies would lead to people only working around 15 hours a week it was the the figure that was bandied about so that people would have all this other time to to fill and she was thinking that it, it needed to be something that was educational that was creative that was really bringing the individual to their kind of peak potential really so about exciting the intellect and inciting creativity, conversations, debates. So all all sorts of different aspects of culture were going to be represented in this fun palace. And the space Mm. itself was designed to be flexible. So just in the way that you'd have this very flexible program of of activities happening in in the fun palace, the space itself was supposed to morph and change through platforms coming up and coming down or screens coming in and coming out so the spaces themselves were seen as as fluid and could morph into into different shapes in order to accommodate different activity the fun palace rejected the systemic conditioning of time in which the market forces that blur leisure and work creativity and labor were disseminated through its architectural form Resisting the artificial zoning of time, the Fun Palace intervened by diverting the passive subject to multiple rooms of activity. Anti-authoritarian design merged with the romanticism of the cybernetic revolution. Its form almost resembles the stacking of containers in a port. 
Rooms could be moved, rearranged or reimagined. Through the implementation of a full-span travelling crane, the space can maximise possibility. One of the central ideas with the, with the Fun Palace was about democratising knowledge and democratising culture. So it really harks back to her earlier work with the workers' theatre movement when she was trying to take theatre out to working class audiences, to audiences that weren't traditional theatre goers. So it was, yes, about democratising knowledge. It was about democratising culture. It was about exciting the imagination and that really connects to her way of working on theatre productions. So she famously used to kind of use a script as a template in the rehearsal room and was one of the earlier advocates of improvisation, of actors coming in and just playing around with ideas in order to try and reach an authentic kind of representation of, of working class lives or the ways in which people interact. So I think there's a real connection in that that openness, that playfulness, ideas of improvisation with the fun palace ethos that you could come in and pick up an instrument and play that for a little while and then you could go and have a, a lecture on the new technologies or you could then go and watch an art house film or go and wash your socks. Although activities envisaged in the Fun Palace already existed across metropolitan life, it was the entanglement of these activities that was to give greater freedom of choice and form the possibility of new amusements. Thus, the building itself is the extension of the activity and a radical reinvention of leisure. I think it's really important to keep Littlewood's kind of sense of change and adventure alive. Um, she really wanted to kind of grab the status quo by the scruff of the neck and just throw things up in the air and see where things landed. And I think that's that spirit of wanting to, to explore and to experiment and to collaborate and to really think about how theatre as an event functions politically. Um, and how we should change the structures of representation, who's making that work, who's coming to see it. You know, that's, that spirit is very, you know, we should absolutely celebrate it today and, and push it forward in new directions. Thanks to Nadine Holdsworth for that contribution. Now to play us out, Liverpool's finest, Rob Howard. Would you tell my girl in Danville that she need not worry at all? I'm going to that country where you don't have to work at all. No, you do not have to work there and you'll find a door unlocked and a little that comes flowing down the rocks I am going to that country where everything is ripe where the handouts grow on bushes and they sleep out every night I don't have to wash my overalls and never change my socks I'll just sit by the stream of whiskey that 
comes flowing down the rocks. I'll just sit by the stream of whiskey that comes flowing down the rocks. I'll just sit by the stream of whiskey that comes flowing down the rocks. TWT is an annual festival and year-round political education project committed to providing political education across the UK in order to build a movement capable of radically transforming society. TWT relies on you, so head over to theworldtransform.org to become a supporter. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and consider leaving us a friendly review it really does help get the word out. Until next time, we hope you're feeling inspired to imagine, demand and build a world transformed.